I don't have one main passage we're going to look at tonight, but I, I want to speak just for a few minutes on the subject of peace, uh, particularly peace in the body of Christ, the church, uh, but it will also apply to peace in every sphere of life. And I want to speak on this to piggyback this morning's message when we saw the very sad division between two good and godly men, uh, that is Barnabas and Paul. Uh, we uh, saw that they departed from one another after uh, a very sharp, sharp uh, division between them. And so the subject of peace is very important. It's important in the Scriptures. We see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, that God has called us as Christians to peace. Uh, it says in Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. God is a God of peace, we're told. And He has called us, His children, to be peace lovers. The, the uh, seventh beatitude is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, they shall be called the children of God. God hates discord, especially among His own children. Even among two of His great saints, like Barnabas and Paul. Uh, we read that and we are grieved. Well, how much more is our Heavenly Father grieved when He sees His children fighting one another? God hates discord, but He loves peace and unity. We read in Psalm 133 this morning for our call to worship, Verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And there is a plethora of scriptures that substantiate this truth. In fact, the sweet fragrance of peace permeates the entire New Testament epistles. We find the writers either rebuking discord or encouraging peace. To the Corinthian church, Paul writes with grief and alarm, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, that there are quarrels among you. That was sad news to the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, read, uh, we read the other evening from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 2, where he was imploring these two women in the church, Yodia and Sintichi, uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord, that is to live in harmony. So God has called us to be at peace and to be peacemakers. But not only has He called us to peace, He has commanded us to seek peace. Romans 12, verse 18. I'm not going to have you turn to all these. It will just take too long. But uh, Romans 12:18, we read, if, Paul says, If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now that extends beyond the borders of the church, of course. He says we're to be peacemakers wherever we go. And he does acknowledge that it's not always possible. Uh, persecution shows that it's not possible. They, they will hate you, Jesus said. Their hatred will, uh, will disrupt peace. It'll disrupt peace in your own home, but not in your own heart. Uh, but it's, it's not always possible. And as we've said before, it's not always the right thing to seek peace. We're not to seek it at all costs. Uh, especially if it costs truth or holiness. And if we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
then we must follow his command to be a peacemaker. Uh, but a, a third reason that shows the importance of, of peace is that Jesus Christ earnestly prayed for the unity of believers in his high priestly prayer there in John 17. Several times he prays for it, but in verse 11, he prays specifically that they, that is his disciples and all who would believe in him through them, that they may be one as we are one, he says. So that's what he prays for. Our intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, prays for his church that we would have peace. Uh, one of the Puritans I read for the message this morning, uh, he said this disruption uh, between Paul and and Barnabas, uh, that's not the way, uh, that's not the king's highway, he says. That's not his ways, the Lord's ways. It's man's ways, it's Satan's ways, but it's not God's ways. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, to disrupt peace in a church fellowship is to despise both prayer, the prayers of Christ and the blessing of Christ. Well, we don't want to despise what he actually prays for. We should love what he prays for. What he prays for, we should seek. And then finally, it's a reflection of God's own character. I said that God is called the God and Father. He's called the God of peace. The God of peace. And the supreme example of a peacemaker is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, uh, that shows us the importance of peace. But we need to understand, if we're to be peacemakers, if we're to pursue it, we need to understand that peacemaking requires effort. Uh, let me just give you three passages. Hebrews twelve fourteen, It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We often just apply it to holiness, that you're to pursue holiness, and if you're not pursuing it, you won't see the Lord but it goes along with peacemaking. Pursue peace and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So again, he's using the word pursue. It's to chase down this thing. It's not going to fall in your lap. It's not, you're not going to wake up one morning and be a peacemaker you're going to have to pursue it. Uh, look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who pursued peace. Uh, someone said that He took that long journey from heaven to earth, engaging in that labor of love to establish peace. It cost Him and it cost Him dearly. Then Ephesians chapter 4, we are told to be endeavoring, always endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But if we're to pursue it, then we need to be aware of and avoid the causes of its opposite, which is contention. And what are the inward causes of contention? The two causes are selfishness and pride. I believe we talked about that just the other night in our business meeting. These are the root causes of contention. Selfishness and pride. Why is there so much contention? Why so much hostility in the world? What is it that disrupts the peace in whether it's a home, a family, a church, a society? 
between the races, between the nations? Well, James tells us that it's selfishness in James chapter 3, verse 16, where envy and self-seeking exist. Confusion and every evil thing are there. It's that selfishness, self-seeking, looking out for number one. And that's the the philosophy of the world is to do that very thing. Look out for number one. You've been, they'll tell mothers, you've been spending all your time serving your children and your husband and so forth. You need to stop and start serving yourself. Well, that's a sure road to dissension. Not a sure road to happiness. Uh, that self-centeredness. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, there Paul says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's uh, what Paul desired as a pastor. Uh, That would make him a joyful pastor. And certainly that makes a joyful pastor. When there's contention in in the church, the pastor may smile and put on a good face, but his heart is aching. Uh, but he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And, and as I said the other night in quoting that passage, then he goes right on to give us the supreme example of this in the Lord Jesus Christ who who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but He emptied Himself and took upon the form of a man. John Blanchard said, There is no peace in the heart of a man who is self-centered and covetous and whose constant concern is to please himself. He's always envious, pushing, striving, pressing, agitated, and restless. A selfish, self-centered child is that way. They're not... Uh, a, a happy child that you like to be around. And it's the same with an adult. A selfish, self-centered adult is unpleasant to others, but even to himself. He's always agitated and restless, Blanchard says. By pride comes nothing but strife. That's the other enemy of peace. Pride. Proverbs 13.10. Proverbs 28.25. He who is of a proud heart does what? Stirs up strife. If you're to see there's strife in, in a church or in a, in a business, whatever, you search around, you find the one who's causing it, and you'll find selfishness and pride at the center of his life. You see, the proud man thinks that he is superior to others. Paul says in Romans 12 that we're not to think of ourselves as more highly than we ought to think. Well, that's exactly what this man does. He thinks more highly of himself. He doesn't take it well if you don't agree with him or if you don't agree with his opinion. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, when this wind of pride gets into a man's heart, it causes sad earthquakes of division. Count on it. Now, I do want you to turn to this one passage, and this will be the last one we we look at. That is First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. And here Peter, like Paul, has entered into his practical section of his epistle, 
And uh, he talks about wives submitting to their husbands and husbands, uh, how they're to treat their, uh, their wives. And then in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers. Just think of these. These are admonitions to you and to me in the context of the church especially, but it applies to the home as well. Uh, love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You see, when, that, when you engage in that, someone says something to you and you say something back, just as mean or meaner, you've done nothing but increase. You've turned up the dial. Uh, we see that in our children. They, they're in there fighting and fighting. And you say, what's going on in here? And they say, well, he called me a such and such. Yeah, but you called me this. Well, I did that because you called me that. And it's back and forth. And you think, well, that's childish. Well, isn't that exactly what we are acting like? Selfish little children. And children, you shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't if your brother or your sister says a bad thing to you or calls you a name or uh, something. You don't turn around and say the same thing back. You're just stirring up more trouble. But it says uh, that we're not reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called for this, that you may inherit a blessing. And then he quotes the psalmist, uh, David. He says, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There's that idea of of pursuing it. It takes effort. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And then he he says this great promise at the end, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, who are the righteous? He talks, he speaks of here. The the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Well, we know it's not those who are perfectly righteous, for there are none. None here on earth. There is none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. But they are righteous in that they are the ones who have been declared righteous. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, they stand with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? You see, they're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. They have been declared righteous. But they have also, uh, they are also those who have been made righteous through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You see, when God saves us, He declares us righteous. We are saved. We are justified. But He doesn't stop at justification. He immediately begins that sanctifying work in the heart of a man or a woman or a boy or girl. God says in the New Covenant that He writes His own law in our hearts. That's the great difference between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. The Old Testament people had the law written on tablets of stone, but God's people have the law written on their hearts in the new covenant. The new creature that he has become through Christ 
hates the things he once loved and loves the things he or she once hated. They are pursuing holiness, which we're told without which no one will see the Lord. They want to be holy. They hate their sinfulness. They confess their sins. They ask for cleansing. They ask for purifying. Like David, cleanse me and I shall be pure. And so they are those who have been made righteous. Charles Simeon said this term, the, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, this term comprehends those who in the prevailing habit of their lives turn from iniquity to serve the living God. He therefore who has fled to the Lord Jesus for refuge and through the operation of the Spirit of God is endeavoring to fulfill the will of God. He may justly consider himself as answering to this character. He's righteous. Now we, we, we shrink back from that, don't we? Uh, are you, are you righteous? We ask. And you hang your head and say, no, I'm, I'm but a sinner. You are a sinner, but you've been saved. You've been justified, but you're also being sanctified. And so he goes on to describe this. He said he may justly consider himself as answering to this character, notwithstanding many infirmities yet cleaving unto him. So they are, they're righteous because they are desirous of it. They're pursuing it. They've not yet perfected it. But notice this passage, the promise says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What a, what a promise that is. We know that the Bible teaches that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere beholding the evil and the good. God is omniscient. That means He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present with His entire being. But His eyes are on the righteous in a special way. Again, Simeon says, on the righteous, His eyes are fixed with peculiar complacency. You see, when He looks upon the wicked, He doesn't look upon them with complacency like He's glad what he sees. But when he looks upon his children, he's delighted. It's, a, it's with peculiar complacency. Simeon says he delights to look, on his own, look upon them. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on their behalf, to protect them from every evil, to supply them with every needful good. What a wonderful thing to know that if we're pursuing these things, this pursuing uh, peace and, and, and turning away from evil and doing good, that God's eyes are upon us for the good. And it says His ears are open to their prayers. Oh, not because of our goodness or because of our righteousness, but because we are His. He has called us. He calls us saints. Again, to close with this quote by Simeon, he says, we all know what a different uh, feeling a parent beholds the children of strangers and his own. If his own child be in such a situation of danger, his eye is upon it to interpose in a time of need. Uh, I don't know if you saw the, the story of a, uh, I think it just happened yesterday. Uh, a couple in Miami uh, were coming out of a Walgreens or a CDC uh, with their little four-year-old child and some man just reaches down and grabs the little child by the neck and starts heading out the door. Well, the father went into action and he 
jumped on that guy and ripped his shirt off or his sweater off, and, and the guy took off running. Uh, but the parent wasn't about to let that. He's ready uh, because it was his child. Now, he may have done it for any child, but his own child, surely he would do it for them. And then he goes on to say, and if we, if he were to hear its cry, the cry of his child, all the tenderest feelings of his soul would be called forth. All the efforts which he could make would be exerted for its relief. The inarticulate cry of an infant doesn't fall on deaf ears, his mother's ears. So God hears not only the prayers, but the sighs and the groans of his people. And he will fulfill the unexpressed desires of their heart. Even before they cry, he will answer. And while they are yet speaking, he will hear. What a promise attached to those who are seeking peace and pursuing it. So may we be of those that is described in here. He would love good days, love life and see good days. May we follow these directives, particularly this directive of seeking peace and pursuing it. Let's pray.